doing, church? Doing good? All right, good. You still saturated or did it leak out? I don't know. I feel good. Last week, I thought it was incredible. So glad you guys are here. If you got your Bible, grab it. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. Really, um, all the way until Advent starts when we start putting up the Christmas lights. Or some of you freaks have already probably done it. But for us normal people, um, we're going to be in the book of Genesis really throughout the fall until we hit like Christmas time. Uh, and, and this is a big weekend for us, okay? It's a really big weekend. Not, not only is it the first Jags home game, go Jags. Woo, all right. I know you're not going, you're here. But I'm going to try to get you out in time that, that you can at least watch it, all right? Try hard. Um, also, also, uh, what else happened this weekend? You know, uh, oh, this Tuesday is our second anniversary. Isn't that cool? We turned two. Happens on Tuesday, which is really, really crazy. But here's what's been, here's what's really been awesome. Since today we opened the doors here, 1,875 people have surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ. And also, because we say this all the time, we're not just trying to make converts, but make disciple-making disciples. 1,175 of you have joined into disciple groups, and that's amazing. Yay, give yourself a hand there. And just in the last few months, like since June, 500 adults have joined disciple groups. So we, don't, we want you to get plugged in and, and connected with people, and so we would really like for you to join a disciple group. So when this is over, then, um, then you can go out to one of those tents and just get signed up. And also, um, I'm leading our very first men's retreat that starts today. And so normally at the end of the service, I'm right here to, to hang out with you and pray or meet you, whatever. Not today. I'm going that way. And I think maybe Jonathan Berlin, our guitar player right here, he'll be here to just hug it out with you, okay? So <clears throat> tell him in a little while, Ben. That's his job today. All right. If you got your Bibles, make it to Genesis chapter 4. And if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. I know we were standing, then we sat, but I want to make the Catholics feel at home for just a second, okay? So stand back up. <clears throat> Some of you are like, finally. All right, here we go. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. 
And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. May God add blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Amen. You can be seated. So we're going to dig in here, and I'm going to answer this. Um, really, if you, if you take the Bible seriously and you read through that passage, <clears throat> the obvious question is, why was Abel's offering acceptable and Cain's offering not acceptable? Is it just that God likes meat more than vegetables? I mean, who doesn't? But is that just what it is? <clears throat> And in order to really tease this out, you probably need to get your notes because I'm going to go all through the Bible, okay? Uh, We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to go almost to the scary book of Revelation, not quite. We'll get to 1 John and make our way all the way back. And and I just need to give you a warning. Typically, when I teach and preach, you got to pay attention to the first part. You can kind of check Facebook during the middle and then wake back up at the end. You can still get saved. Today, not the case. You've got to stay with me the whole time, okay? I hope you brought your, your big boy pants and you got to keep up. Because if you miss any section along the way, it just won't make sense. So you got to keep up. And, and the fundamental question here is, why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable and not Cain's? Well, well here's the thing. I'm going to teach you a principle about who God is. Because there's some things that God can't do or won't do. He just can't or won't. And God cannot and will not act outside of his own character. Okay? Because then he would cease to be God. So here's what this means. So, for instance, God can never be surprised. He just can't be surprised because he doesn't think the way we think. You see, we think in order to figure out problems. God's not figuring anything out. God's never, ever in heaven going, you know what I just thought of? That's never happened, okay? It's called the omniscience of God, that he knows everything at all times. He knows it all. Let me tell you why this is good news for you. That means that you've never surprised him, which means he's never been disappointed in you. This is good news. This is why some of you think that when Jesus died on the cross, it didn't count for you. And you're wrong. It counted for you. And some of you live with this ongoing, it's almost like a low-grade fever of you think God is a little bit disappointed in you and how much you screwed it up this week, especially based on how much you promised you weren't going to at the altar last week. And God knew the deal he was getting into. He already knew it. He never looked at you and said, hey, way to go, it's saturated. And then on Tuesday, he went, oh, really? That never happens. He already knows and still chooses to adopt you into his family and lavish his love upon you. See, this is a big deal. It's called the omniscience of God. Here's another thing that God never changes. God never changes. This is called the immutability of God. Because if God could change, he could either change for the better, which means he's not perfect now, he'd cease to be God, or he could change and get worse, which would disqualify him from being God. So God never changes the immutability of God. This is also good news for you. That means when you surrendered your life to God and he, and, and, and he saves you, that he can never take that away because he's never going to change. Again, it's not like you surrender your life to Jesus and he's like, okay, sweet, welcome to the family. And then you sin one Thursday night and he's like, right, give it back. Give it, I, I, I've changed my mind. Give it back. That's why people would make terrible gods, right? All the husbands said, amen, all right, because it changed your mind a lot, right? God never, 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 never changes. He's immutable. In other words, God cannot overlook sin. Because he is holy and he is just. Now, you and I can overlook sin, and I've had people ask me, how come God doesn't just call an all-skate? Hey, everybody in. Because the gospel is not one day you'll stand before God and he's going to look at you and go, hey, you know all that sin stuff where you committed treason against the Almighty? Don't worry about it. Get in here, buddy. Hey, give me a hug. That is not the gospel, okay? God is holy and just, and God made him who was without sin to be sin for us that we would be made his righteousness. That you and I can overlook sin because we're so sinful. But God is perfect and holy and just. And so sin must be paid for. But he's also full of love. He is love. So he made the payment. He cannot overlook sin. 
and then the one that, that affects us in this passage, that God cannot be second. He just can't be. This is the preeminence of God. That God is first. And if, he, if he's not first in your life, if you say, well, actually, he's like about third place in my life. Well, then the truth is that he is first. He's either going to be first in your life as Lord or judge, but he is first. That God is first. And so this begins to answer the question of why, <clears throat> why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable and not Cain's. And so what I want to walk through here is what theologians call the principle, um, the principle of, of first or the principle of preeminence. That God is first. Because here's the truth. Now pay attention to this. If God is not first in your life, your life is always going to be out of order. That's just true. And it's why I don't do a lot of like self-help kind of sermons. Because if God's not first in your life, if the gospel's not first in your life, then regardless, if you get your finances in order, if you get relationships in order, if you get your work life in order, if you get those things in order, but God's not first, your life is always going to be out of order. But when you get him first, when you understand that he's first and you put him first, then as a result of his preeminence or firstness, then everything else can line up the way God has designed it to line up. It's called the principle of preeminence or the principle of the first. And eventually we're going to get, going to, get to even talking about your money and what you offer God. And you just got to hear this from the beginning, okay? <clears throat> There's not, I'm not, we're not taking a special offering at the end of this or anything like this. You just need to know that. See, you already look nervous, okay? Normally you're smiling. Now you're all puckered up, all right? Listen, um, if you get offended or whatever, I love you too much to care about what you think of me today. And you need this because your soul needs a level of freedom that you're not experiencing right now because you're not putting God first. So I'm going to walk through the whole Bible, okay, parts of it from all over the place to help you and me understand the principle of first. And this is foundational for understanding the gospel. If you don't understand the principle of first or the principle of preeminence, then, then you'll forever misunderstand the gospel. And you'll always think that God is somehow responding to you as opposed to you responding to God being first. So here we go. The first part of the principle of the first is this, that God is first. So the first verse in the whole Bible starts this way. In the beginning, God. That's how it starts. That word beginning, I told you what the Hebrew is, R-E apostrophe S-H-I-T. I can't say it because I'd have to fire me, okay? But, but it means first, firstborn, preeminent. That's what it means. That before there was a beginning, before there was space, matter, time, light, any being of heaven and earth, that in the beginning there was God. That God is first or preeminent. And just so you don't think this is just some kind of like Old Testament thing, go to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. By the way, you might want to get out your notes. I put all of the text there. Unless you won the sword drills from Southern Baptist School when you were little, you ain't going to be able to keep up. Okay, so John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with the Word. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's talking about Christ, the preeminence of Christ. And then we know this is talking about Jesus because in verse 14 it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? So in the beginning, even before there was a beginning, there was God, that he's first. And now look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It's talking about Christ again. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that, <clears throat> that he was the first created thing. We'll find out here in a second. He created all things. This is talking about order, about birth order. 
That he's number one is what that means. Verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Can I just tell you, I think that's neat, that there's some invisible stuff that he made. I don't know where it is. I obviously can't see it, but I just think that's cool, that I'm going to make some stuff you can see, and here's some other stuff you can't see, and I made that too. I think that's neat. I don't know if you do or not. So he makes visible stuff and invisible stuff, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is first. You've got to understand that. Okay. Now, at this point, most of the people that would be at church would say, okay, no problem. No argument here. God is bigger than me, stronger than me. He was here before me. God is first, which leads to this, that God went first. So the reason God went first is because God is first. So you've got to understand that. God is first and God went first. We'll go to Romans 5.8. It's going to start to get real practical in your own life. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what that means? That God went first. He wasn't waiting on you to get your act together and then respond to you. That is not the gospel. That's the message that a lot of you grew up with. I don't want to pick on any particular denominations, but there are a lot of mainline denominations, and that's what you grew up with. That I've got to do these things, and then God will love me or receive me or accept me. That is not the gospel. That's why this is a movement for all people, regardless of what you've done, because it ain't about you. It's about what he has already done for you, that God went first. And here's the thing that's just been weighing so heavy on my heart as I pray for you and pray for your prayer cards. I know there are some of you in the room right now, and you don't understand and you don't believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that counted for you. You you can kind of grasp that it counts for the guy next to you that sings with his hands up and his eyes closed, or it counts for your grandma because she's so good. But please hear me that it counted for you. That God demonstrated his love for you. That while you were yet still a sinner, like last night, you know what you were doing last night? Sinning, all right? And you're like, how do you know? I know, okay? Pastors.com, it's all there. I know what you're doing. And yet he knew, and he went first. That's why we say it's okay to not be okay. And some of you think, here's what you think, and it's just dumb, okay? I know, and you can have your own opinion, but you can be dumb too. Here's what you think. You think, you think, well, once I get my life together, then I'll connect with God. Then I'll connect with the church. Then I'll be a part of what's going on. It would be like if, if you're walking out to your car today and you fall down and break your arm. And I rush up and say, oh, my goodness, you've broken your arm. Let me take you to the ER, to the emergency room. And you go, no, 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 no. I don't want to mess up the cleanliness of the emergency room by showing up with a broken arm. Let me go home and try to heal it myself. And then I'll come in later and report what has happened. I'd be like, okay, actually, psych ward is where we need to go because you're crazy. That's not how it works. Welcome to the emergency room, okay? That's what this place is. This isn't play, people that have it all together just coming to show it. It's people that are just as jacked up as everybody else, just as jacked up as you know you to be. I know, look around. Everybody looks so great. This is the best moment of their week. Do you understand that? The best moment of their whole week. They look better, smell better, and are acting better than any other moment of their whole week. I promise, okay? I know some of them really, really well. And here we are. Why? Because he went first. Because even in our jacked upness, 
God demonstrates his love for us by going first, and it counts for you. 1 John 4, 19, listen to this, that we love because he first loved us. Do you know why we can love each other? Husbands and wives, you know why you can love each other? You know why you can love your kids? You know why you can love your family? You can love your neighbor? Do you know why we as brothers and sisters in Christ can love one another? Because you're so lovable? No. But because he first loved us. And when you surrendered your life to Christ, when you respond to him going first, then he fills you with himself and he is loved. Therefore, we are able to love because he first loved us. Now, many of you know this. John three sixteen. This is the verse that Tebow wrote for us, okay? I know. Sorry to bring it up now, but, you know, whatever. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. Now, it says only son. The King James gets it a little better because it translates it only begotten son. The Greek word there means um, of the same essence. That's what it means, okay? It means one and only of the same essence. It also means first. And so just one and only is not enough because I have one and only motorcycle, but it's not begotten of me, right? But I've also got one and only son and one and only daughter, and they are my only begotten son and daughter. You see, cats beget cats, and dogs beget dogs, and people beget people, and God begets God. See how that works? And so, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know what this means? That God went first. And when he went first, you know what he gave us? He gave us his first, and he gave us his best. Then when he looked at this world and saw the fact that we had rebelled against God and sinned against God, he didn't give us leftovers. He didn't look around heaven and be like, anybody want to go down there and do something about this? You know, Gabriel, Michael, come on, bring your trumpets. Let's do something. No, that's not what he did. That he sends his only begotten son. That whoever would trust, believe, commit their whole life into that, that we would be saved, that we wouldn't perish, but we'd have eternal life. And many people don't know 17. It says, he came not to condemn, but to save the world. That's why he came. You see, God is first. And God went first. Do you see how fundamental this is in your understanding of the gospel? Therefore, because God's first, because God went first, therefore we are to put God first. That's our response. God doesn't respond to us. God is first. God went first. We are responders. God is the initiator. Fundamental to understanding the gospel. Therefore, in response to God being first and going first, we are to put God first in our lives. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Does anybody know where that passage comes from? Ten Commandments. Good job. Right? See, very few people even know that. They love the Ten Commandments. Don't even know where it is. Like, I thought it was in a courthouse in Alabama. No, it's in Exodus chapter 20. So before you fight for it, you know, figure out where it is. So, The first commandment, the preeminent commandment is what? God says, put me first. Why? Because he is first and he went first. Like they didn't do anything to deserve being brought out of Egypt and he, by his strong hand, brings them out of Egypt. Therefore, in response to that, you and I put God first. Go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter six, verse 33. This is Jesus speaking in the longest recorded sermon that he preaches And let me just give you a little context of Matthew 6, 33. In Matthew 6, thousands of people gather around to hear Jesus, this miracle worker, teach and preach. And here's the context of his sermon. 
His context of Matthew 6 is this. Hey, you guys are worrying about a whole lot of stuff in this world. And there's a lot to be worried about, isn't there? Some of you are worrying about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear. Now, honest to goodness, does that sound like the most relevant sermon you've ever heard in your whole life? It does, doesn't it? Any of you right now worrying about how you're going to pay your bills and what you're going to wear? I know many of you this morning spent an exorbitant amount of time worried about what you're going to wear this morning. Some of you should maybe pay a little more attention to it, but that's a different sermon, okay? But you're worried about that stuff. And then in the context of this sermon, he says, now, some of you are worrying like the pagans. Pagan just means somebody that doesn't know God. And he essentially says, so I don't understand that. Don't you understand that God is in control, that God's got it under control? I mean, you're worrying about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live, how you're going to pay the bills, what you're going to drive. You're worried about all this stuff. And so instead of worrying about that stuff, why don't you just trust the God who's in control of all this stuff? And here's how it plays out. He says, but seek first. Do you see the principle of first? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What things? All that stuff you keep worrying about. And all these things will be added to you. In other words... When you don't seek God first, but you worry about this stuff, what you're revealing is that you don't trust God and that you have to take control. That, that's the real problem there. So when I was a little kid, um, we grew up fishing a lot. <clears throat> and my daddy would take us fishing all the time. And I have a great dad. I mean, a great dad. Joseph Perry Martin Jr., I'm the third. JP's the fourth. We're really into us, okay? Whatever. I don't, if you're not into it, I don't care. But we are. And so... Every Saturday, when I was a little guy, we would go fishing, and we would go in the, uh, in the Little Petey River, it's this Blackwater River in, in near Dillon, South Carolina, and my dad and his, his dad, Joseph Perry Martin Sr., he, they built a John boat by hand with a little 20-horsepower Johnson on it, and, uh, and I would sit up front, and my dad would sit in the back, and my little brother, Russ, would sit on the cooler in the middle, Okay. And we didn't do fancy fishing like I like to do now. We just did brim fishing with a cane pole. It's what we did. And we caught, everyone we caught, we kept it and ate them, and it was awesome, okay? And that's what we did. And we'd hook the boat up in the trailer to the 73 Chevy with three on the column that we had. And let me just tell you this. Do you know what I was worried about in the first grade and in the second grade when I went fishing with my dad? Nothing. Nothing. No, why? Because my daddy was there. I didn't have anything to worry about. He had it under control. Were we worried about safety? No. There we are in the truck. Daddy just puffing cigarettes and we're locked in there. And sometimes he'd let us open a little triangle window so we could get a little bit of oxygen. Were we worried? Uh Uh-uh. Do we have on a safety helmet and harness? No, no, no. There's Russ standing in the middle on the bench seat. And I would sit shotgun. But we weren't worried. Why? Because dad had that thing. Remember that? Stop a bullet, wouldn't it? And then sometimes I'd lose like a starburst or something, and I'd go reaching for it between the crack of the bench seat, and I'd find this strap with a metal thing and go, Daddy, what's that? And he goes, Son, stuff that thing back in the seat. It'll fly around and hurt somebody. But like, all right, stuff the seat belts down. <laughs> and we'd get there. Do you think I worried about having a fishing license? No, because Daddy had it under control. Do you think I worried about having gas in the boat or gas in the truck? No, because Daddy had it under control. Do you think I worried about the bait? No, because Daddy had it under control. Think I worried about lunch? No, Daddy had it under control. And every, every Saturday for lunch, he brought the same thing. We'd get a little bit hungry, and he'd pull out a can of Vienna sausages. You know this? For this for, I just, for memory's sake, I got a can a few months ago, and it was not awesome. Okay, so, 
And he'd pop that thing up, and he'd scoop that little jolting stuff, right? You with me? Kind of chumming a little bit, you know, for the fish. Every single week, he'd say the same thing. You hungry, boys? Yeah, they were hungry. And, he, and he'd say, you know what this is made out of? And look in the can. We go, what, Daddy? And he'd go, lips and butts. Look, I see one right there. And he'd eat it. And we'd go, oh, Dad, that's gross. Give me one, give me one. And we'd eat it. Every week. By the way, if you're uncomfortable with your pastor saying, but you're going to hate this church, so at least now you know. All right, so, but here's the deal. <clears throat> I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't have to worry about it because my dad had it under control. What Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 6 is the principle of the first. If you trust God, why would you worry about this stuff? Seek him first because he's got it under control. That's it. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your produce. Underline first fruits. That's important, particularly in answering the question, why was Abel's offering acceptable and not Cain's? He says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. In other words, you don't wait around to see what you've got left over, but at first, the first thing you do is you bring to God what is his. Verse 10, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Does that mean that if you bring your tithes and offerings to God, that he owes you full barns and vats of wine? Is that what that means? Now, let me just tell you this. Some people will use verses like that to teach what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel goes this way, that if you give to God, then God gives to you health, wealth, and happiness. Is that true? No, let me tell you the fundamental heresy of the prosperity gospel and why I will always just rail against it every opportunity I get. One, it might be the most pervasive thing taught on like Christian TV, and it's dangerous. Here's the danger. If you think, if I bring my first roots to God, then he owes me 10 or 20 or 100 times what I've given him. Here's the problem. In that equation, who's first? You. You're saying, all right, God, I go first, and you have to respond to me. That's the heresy. The gospel is God is first and we respond to him. So when we bring to God, not so that he will do something for us, but because he has already done for us, then it's worship and honor and praise unto God. And it's a, it's a movement of trust on our part to honor him. If you try to give to God to, to pay him off so that he'll owe you the promotion or more money or health, wealth, and happiness, if you do that, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm God, now you get in line with me. I've figured out the equation, and you owe me. And that's the prosperity gospel, and it's heresy. Now, some people overcorrect, and they go to the poverty gospel, where they say, but it's more godly to be broke. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Okay? You bring God his first, and then God blesses people in all kinds of different ways for our enjoyment, is what First Timothy says. Okay? So it's not poverty gospel. It's not prosperity gospel. It's just the gospel. And the gospel is God is first, and God went first, and God's calling us to put him first. Now, there's a couple of things I want to unpack here in verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. First of all, I want to talk about that collectively. That what if every Christian in America brought their first fruits to God? The first 10% of everything that came in. Do you think the barns of this world and the vats of wine of this world would be blessed? Well, um, a a guy in my disciple group sent me this article by Relevant Magazine that um, only about 5% of the U.S. church attenders tithe. About 80% of church attenders give about 2% of their income. 
And the more you make, the less percentage-wise you give, okay? That's just how it goes, statistically. If everybody that says, yep, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, yes, I do, I love Jesus, how about you? If those kind of people, church-attending people, if we all tithed, brought our first 10% to God, here's how it would change. That the American church would have $165 billion above and beyond what it has right now to invest into kingdom activities. Here's what the American church could do for this world if that were the case. That we could invest $25 billion to relieve global hunger. And in five years, there would be no starvation deaths or no deaths from preventable disease. Done. It's just done. That not instead of, but in addition to that. So in addition to that, we could give $12 billion towards eliminating illiteracy in the world in the next five years. That not only could we feed every man, woman, and child in the world, but we could educate every man, woman, and child in the entire world. In addition to that, not instead of, we could give $15 billion to solve the world's water and sanitation issues. That means nobody in the world would die of preventable diseases like diarrhea ever again. That every person would have clean water to drink. In addition to that, a um, billion dollars could fully fund all overseas mission work. And then, even then, we would still have $100 billion to figure out what to do with. So, let me just tell you, <clears throat> there are enough resources in this world to feed, clothe, educate, and give medicine to every human being on the earth. And for whatever reason, God has decided to pile a lot of it between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Okay? And so, can you imagine, if the church, not even those pagan people doing all those awful things that you're praying for right now, but me and you, and everybody like me and you that are in church today, if we would just be faithful to bring first fruits to God, then we could solve the biggest five problems in the world. Do you think, God, that might not be a blessing? Now, what about you individually? What about you individually? Um, let me just say this. You get God first, you get God first. And I promise you, there is a supernatural financial blessing. I promise you. It's all throughout the scripture that God in your 90 can do way more than you in your 100. And, and you talk to anybody walking with Jesus faithful in tithes and offerings for any period of time and their testimony, that's, that's what it will be. But even if you take the supernatural part out of it, because I know we've got some skeptics here and, and I understand. Even if you take the supernatural part out of it, do you know what a huge part of the blessing is? Did you know every one of us in this room, every single one of us live on a percentage of our income? Now, the problem in America is most Americans are living on like 108% of their income, which is awesome at first. You can live in what you can't afford, you can drive what you can't afford, and you can wear clothes that you can't afford. But you walk down that road very long, and it's not good, okay? You can write that down as your financial pastor planner here and tell you, if you live on more than you make, that's not going to end well. So even if you leave out the supernatural blessing of God on your finances by being faithful and, and, and ordering your life in the way he's ordered, I'm just telling you, if you learn to live on, if you learn the discipline of living on less than you make, then you will be blessed, regardless of how much comes in, that you will be blessed. And that's a fact. The other thing is this. I was, <clears throat> I was talking to a buddy of mine, and, uh, and he, he's one of my best friends, okay? One of my best friends. And I had the pleasure of leading him to the Lord, and, and he, he's got, like, this radical conversion, you know? Uh, and so he went from, like, pagan to Christian and got baptized and all of that and just said, all right, I'm going all in. And so not only did he go all in spiritually, but he also went all in financially. And so he went from giving nothing to 10%. And, and he's a doctor, 
And not just kind of a regular doctor, but he's like a specialist kind of doctor. And he's like the head of his little deal, okay? So he's real important. I've been to the hospital with him, and we walk in, and like, people are like, oh, he's here, okay? He's a big deal. And so what they decided to do in their family is to bring their first fruits to God. And, and I'm, I'm sharing this with him in the truck on Monday when we're coming back from hunting. And, and he, and I shared this verse about, you know, you bring your first fruits, and your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. And I asked him, how does that land on you? And here's what he said. This is his commentary, not mine. One of my best friends. He said, you know, the truth is, before I met Jesus and before I started bringing my tithe to Jesus, my barns were already filled with plenty and my vats were already bursting with wine. Like I had all the material stuff I could ever want. But it wasn't until we reordered the things in our home and began to bring our first ten to God that those other things, the barns and the vats of wine, began to have value. Because before that, we just go eat wherever we wanted, go on whatever vacation we wanted. We, had, we just kind of had plenty. Didn't really think about it. But we had to actually allocate where it was going. And then what began to happen is the restaurants and the vacations and the fun stuff we were doing as a family had more value because we had to pay attention to it. And so we said, please tell that to the people. So I just told you. Now, here, and here's, here's the greatest blessing. Pastor Ryan taught on it three weeks ago. When you sow in generosity, you reap contentment. And when you begin to understand that the real treasure is Jesus, and he is the one, to be, he is the one that we pursue, and you begin to understand that, then you begin to, to be content with the 90 instead of being discontent with the 100. And it is a blessing personally. <clears throat> now, here's the part where it's really going to bother you, Okay? So God is first, God went first, therefore we're supposed to put God first, and what you do with your money exposes what's first in your heart. It's just true. What you do with your money exposes what's first in your heart. And you know, I got people come to me like, no, I don't think you understand. See, I mean, I love Jesus, and I pray, and I've been in this church for a long time, and I raise my hands and see my eyes closed because it's more spiritual. And I'm in a disciple group, and I do all those things. And I'm telling you, you might say all of that, but... If you look at your bank account, that's what tells you. It exposes you. Your, I'm telling you, your financial statement and mine, it will rat you out about what's most important. And if that bothers you, email Jesus, because I didn't say it. Look at Matthew 6, 21. <laughs> For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you know you cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart and not focus the first fruits of your treasure towards him? It's just impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. I've seen this ver- these verses manipulated so bad for the prosperity gospel, but I wanted to include them in this context. That God is first, that God went first, that God calls us to put Him first, and that what we do with our money is a signal of where is what's most important in our hearts. So listen to this. Malachi, he's the Old Testament prophet, he says this. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. By the way, does that describe any of us in the room? that's my testimony right there. Is it yours? Liars. I know it is. I know it is. So what God is saying to the children of Israel is, hey, you've been screwing up a lot. Is it, it's my testimony. In fact, if you're okay to be honest, if you're ready to be honest, it's really the testimony of all of us. Haven't you tried to live for God and found it difficult? Have you ever promised God, God, if you'll just get me out of this, I'll never do this again. Pray that two or three times. No, but seriously to God, this time I'm being for real. Come on. 
It's the testimony of everybody in the Bible. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a whole lot of the New Testament. You know what he says in the book of Romans? I want to do good, and evil is right there with me. How come the good I want to do, I can't do, but the things I don't want to do, I do? That's what Paul says. Ever feel like that? Yeah. Last night. Or how about Peter? Peter, you know, Rocky, he's going to build the church. Here's what he does. At the Last Supper, Peter says, Jesus, I would never leave you or forsake you. And that night denies three times that he even knows who Jesus is. Sound familiar to you? I'm telling you, there are moments in my life where I feel so close to Jesus and so passionate about Jesus, and I'm ready to attack hell with a water gun, and then one hour later, I act like I don't even know him because of traffic or something goofy. Or how about David, King David? All right, King David wrote the Psalms. When you write the soundtrack to the Bible, you're a big deal. You can write that down. Okay? Everybody's downloading your stuff on iTunes because you wrote the soundtrack to the whole Bible. He's called a man for God's own heart. What are you called? Wretched by Carter Center. And he's a man for God's own heart. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? He writes verses like, as the deer panteth for the water. That's what he writes. And you know what he did? Committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed. That's kind of straying away a little from the Lord, isn't it? Hard to be a deacon here at our church if you're killing off people that you committed adultery with. Okay? So, when, when you get this little intro in Malachi 3, here's what he means. This is an allscape. This is us. Every single one of us. You got a problem sinning? Me too. Here's what he says. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and hadn't kept them. And so here's God's invitation. Because he goes first. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about getting back to that place where you have intimacy with God. Return to me and I'll return to you says the Lord of hosts. But you say, this is our response, how shall we return? Okay, God, what do we have to do? And guess what God talks about? Money. Money. He doesn't say, well, here's what you do. Start a quiet time. Start journaling in a coffee shop. No. Join a small group. Go on a mission trip. Attend church more often. Okay? Sit closer to the front. None of those things. He says one thing. He's going to talk about money. And here's what he says is keeping us from intimacy with God. And again, here's what you got to know. God doesn't want your money. He's got it all anyway. If he wanted your money, he'd just kill you today and take your money. You understand that, right? And so here's, he's talking about relationships. And he says this, well, man rob God, yet you're robbing me. And some will say, how have we robbed God? To which that's what you would say too. Strong language, isn't it? I didn't write it. Look, I'm the mailman. I just deliver it. I don't write it. You understand? And some of you are like, how, I've never robbed God. I've never uh, gone to one of the giving boxes and pop it open, get a little bit for me, and then sneak on out, right? In fact, I feel like God robbed me once. I thought the giving kiosk was an ATM, and I've got some money out, and then thank you for your contribution. Well, dang, all right? So here's what he says. But but we'll say, how have we robbed you? And here's God's answer, in your tithes and contributions. That word tithe in the Bible means 10%, but it doesn't just mean 10%. It means the first 10%. That's what the tithe means, the first 10%. Now, here's something that's just true. Pastor Stovall said it at the opening night of Saturated, and honestly, I'd never thought of it this way before. But every one of us are tithing to something. To something. Something's getting your first. And here's the thing. What's first in your life is going to, be most, is going to have the biggest impact in your life. That's just true. And so some of you, your mortgage, your, your, your mortgage is, is first or your car payment is first, or your Jags ticket is first. Now listen, I'm not anti-house, car, or Jags. 
If, I'll, go, I'll try to go to as many jazz games as I can. If they played on Monday night, I go to every one of them, all right? And this is just a fact. I met Gus Bradley one time. He won the next four games in a row. That's just true, okay? That is. You can look it up historically. So I'm rooting for the Jags. I'm still ridiculous enough to believe it. It's going to get better, okay? So that's me. I'm go. I hope you go to all the games. But <clears throat> the problem is, is that, that many of you are putting your first to something, and yet you say in your heart that God's most important. And so here's what he says. <clears throat> How we rob you in your tithes and contributions. Verse 9. You were cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, a little commentary here. I've looked through the whole Bible. I can't find a place where it says, take up an offering, or that you give to God. Now, you can't give God what's already his, right? You can only bring him what he has longed to you. That's just true. Another thing is, nowhere in the church does the church, like, take it up, but it's always brought. That's why. And that, on top of 1 Corinthians 9, I don't know if we'll always do it this way, but the reason we don't pass a bucket is because I want you to bring to God what is His. 1 Corinthians 9 says, don't give under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. And I still just kind of think, if the bucket starts coming on down, then you're going to be like, oh, i got to do this because they did this. And then those of you that give electronically will just feel guilty. You'll have to bring a little sign that says, I give online. <laughs> okay? None of that's good. <clears throat> so you bring. Now, here's the thing. Statistically speaking, um, would we take in more money if we passed a bucket? Yes. That's what all the, all the statistics of every other church says. And here's, and here's my deal, though. Um, there will be a day that I will stand, according to Hebrews 13, that I will stand accountable before Jesus for you. I will have to give an account for you. And I don't think I'll have to stand there and give an account for how much money we've raised. I think we'll have to give an account on how many disciples were made. So I'm more concerned about the discipleship in your heart, doing it the way the Bible says, of bringing, than I am just trying to get more money. I hope you understand that. And so you bring, you bring, you bring the full tithe into the storehouse. And I know some of you are uncomfortable, but here's the thing. I love you too much to help you to be comfortable. My job is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Do you understand? And here is a, here's a conversation I'm never having with Jesus. One day I'm going to stand before him as he's holding me accountable as the lead and founding pastor of this church, and here's the conversation I'm not having. I'm not going to stand before him and say, okay, Jesus, my understanding of your word was to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and it made people uncomfortable at our church in 2014. And we were one of the fastest-growing churches in the country, and I was scared to mess around with that. So I know what the word said, but I just wanted to skip over that because I didn't want to make your people uncomfortable. I'm not having that conversation. Okay, but with the conversation I hope to have is to say, hey, um, Lord, I know I didn't do it all right. I understand. But by the power of your spirit, by the authority of your word and on the very limited understanding and education that I have, I tried to do the best to just proclaim your word to your people, knowing that it was best for them. That's what we're going to do. And so the word says to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That would be the local place where you're being nourished and fed. To Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And therefore, therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Not, not no more wants. Okay? Don't let, don't let somebody twist this verse and say, you know, if you call now and you give this much, then God owes you that much. That's not how it works. But you trust your dad to provide everything you need. Verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for you. 
so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Again, in Malachi, it's very clear that God goes first and we respond, not to get him to do something, but because he has done something. Because he is first and he went first. Now, when I read this, one of my takeaways was this, is the responsibility of the storehouse manager is to run a tight ship. If you're the one managing the storehouse and people are bringing their first fruits, you better have a legit storehouse, right? And so I understand some of you are skeptical about giving, church, giving, giving money to God through a local church because you've heard so many bad reports about people doing some goofy stuff. Or <clears throat> the guy on TV you, you hear speaking most about money he says, hey, give money so we can build clean wells somewhere. And he's got diamond cufflinks. And you're like, hey, bro, cut back on the hair product and sell the cufflinks and you can feed Africa, all right? So I get that. <clears throat> so at the Church of 1122, um, it is my responsibility to make sure that we are good stewards of, of everything that comes in here in the name of Jesus. So first of all, uh, we have a legit CFO here named Stacy Brown. And this past year, Stacy Brown won an award in Jacksonville called the best CFO in Jacksonville. Something like that. That's what it's called. All right. She won and she works here at our church. Isn't that great? We don't do leftovers. We do best. That's what we do. You're going to clap, clap. Big deal. Now, Stacy Brown and her finance team, which is a whole lot of people over this last year, they have been walking through um, this accreditation process. Because the elders of our church said, we want to be above reproach. We want to be gold standard. We want to be top 1% when it comes to trustworthiness of what's going on here with all the finances. And so this week, I get a letter from the ECFA, the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. And we are accredited by them. Less than 1% of churches in the country and nobody, no church two years old. Because it's a very, very hard process to get approved, right? And here's what this means about our church. There's seven standards that you have to meet, and on the seventh standard, there's like five or six under that one. And here's what they are. The first one's doctrinal issues, like they're not going to accredit some kind of cult. Secondly is governance, that they checked out our elder board and the governance of our church and signed off there. The third is financial oversight, that we do an annual audit, and they calmed through our audit and said, yeah, the oversight here is good. The fourth one is the use of resources in compliance with laws. In other words, regardless of what you believe, are you obeying the law of the land? Check. The fifth one is transparency. So this isn't like a shell game where you give to something and you don't know what's going on, that we report to our folks, here's the financial situation of our church and here's what we spend on what. The sixth one is compensation. That primarily has to do with me and the key staff that they looked at my salary and made sure it's in line with other churches like size and all that, that I'm not flying around on a jet and our poor youth guys eating beanie weenies for a living. You know what I mean? That everybody's in line. The seventh one is about really about you, us taking care of you. Stewardship of charitable gifts. That means that there's truthfulness in communication, that we are open and honest about the, the, what the resources are used here for. The second one under number seven is giver expectation and intent. That if you gave to upon this rock, that's what it's spent towards. If you gave towards mission, that's what it's spent towards. Um, the charitable gift communication. In other words, that, that, we, that we just communicate back to our people where they are and what they've given. Number four, I love this one because this one's about you not being taken advantage of. It's acting in the best interest of the givers. Here's how that's defined. An organization must make every effort to avoid knowingly accepting a gift from or entering into a contract with a giver that would place a hardship on the giver or place the giver's future well-being in jeopardy. 
That means if I were to stand up here one day and say, the Lord God has spoken unto me that you should take your retirement and give it to me now and just be poured in, then they would come along and go, bro, that's shady. Okay? So if you ever end up in another church and you hear that kind of message, get your stuff, pack up your kids, don't go back to that church, okay? That's shady. And then the last one is this, percentage compensation for securing charitable gifts. In other words, I don't get paid on commission. That we, that 1,875 people have gotten saved in this last year, and it's not like I get $100 of baptism. You know, it's like deuce cha-ching. That's not how it works, you understand? <laughs> and so this organization says, yeah, we accredit you. And the reason I wanted to do that is because we want to be above reproach so that you feel good about investing in the kingdom of God right here at the Church of 1122. It took her team a whole lot of time, effort, and energy to do that. And I think when I read Malachi that the, the responsibility of the storehouse manager is to be above reproach. Now, here's the implications to you. Is that something's getting your first. Something's getting your first fruits. And here's what I want to tell you. There's nothing wrong with a mortgage. There's nothing wrong maybe with the car you drive. There's nothing wrong with Jags tickets. They just make terrible gods. That's it. And we'll pick on the Jags. Go along. And they can't bless you. They can't. Not like God can. And when you trust God, you begin to understand that when we bring to Him first, that God in 90 is always more than you in 100. Also, that the most important thing in your life will have the biggest impact on your life. Jesus said it this way, nobody can serve two masters. Nobody can serve two masters. Nobody can serve God and money. No. And whatever your treasure goes to is going to be the most important. And so, if you go back and answer the Cain question, so why was Cain's offering unacceptable? Well, it says, over the course of time, not first, but over the course of time, Cain brought an offering of fruit, not a first fruit. So you know what that means? That Cain was a farmer, and he he sowed some seed, and then they took in a harvest. And instead of taking what was first out of trust and obedience back to God, what he did is said, hey, let's see how this plays out. Okay, I'm going to get around to it, but what I'm going to do is at the end of the month, once I see how much I'm going to give, then I'm essentially what he's saying is I'm going to give God the leftovers. After I've paid all my other bills, whatever's left, I'm going to give to God. And God essentially goes, I'm not second. I'm just not. The God is preeminent. The God is first. But his brother Abel gave of the firstborn. In other words, he didn't wait until everything else was born and see if he had a leftover gimpy one to maybe drop off at the storehouse, but he, he brought his firstborn. It's an act of obedience and trust. And that's the difference. Um, <clears throat> see, Cain sowed in scarcity, right? I don't know if I got enough. And there was really evidence that he didn't trust God, not like his brother Abel did. And, and you remember, Pastor Stone taught on this about three weeks ago. And Pastor Stone taught us that if you sow in generosity, you reap contentment. It's just what you get because you realize that Jesus is more than enough. And so Cain sows in scarcity and he reaps fear and jealousy. And he paved the way of fear and control that ruled the rest of his life. I mean, you read that last part about Cain and he's a fugitive and a wanderer and he literally walks around the rest of his life wondering if everybody's going to kill him. He's just walking down the path that his sowing into scarcity paved for him to walk. The last passage I want to share with you because it just has impacted me so much. Exodus 13. And I also want to just show you, again, one more time, the principle of the first and how it's a gospel issue. It says this. God's talking to Moses, and he's telling Moses what to tell the people. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, 
whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast, is mine. See? So again, God's saying, the first is mine, so bring it to me. Verse 12, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. And again, this is like a farming society, so it made a whole lot of sense to them. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem of the lamb. Now, you're like, what the heck does that mean? Here's what it means. That all the firstborn were going to God. And if you're, maybe if you're not kosher, you can just guess here. Do you think the donkey was born clean or unclean? It was born unclean. And so what God says is, if something is born clean, the firstborn of that, you, you uh, sacrifice to me. But if it's born unclean, then you consecrate something clean to redeem the unclean. That's what he says. Okay? So the donkey's born unclean, and the lamb is born clean. And you sacrifice the lamb to consecrate the donkey, to redeem the donkey. Now, how about you? Were you and I, were we born clean or unclean? Wretched, black-hearted sinners. Unclean, right? Was Jesus born clean or unclean? Clean. And the clean was sacrificed for the unclean to redeem us. You see a picture of the gospel here in the principle of the first. Because God is first. Because God went first. And we're supposed to put him first. And so, and then he even talks about if you don't redeem the unclean, God's just going to take it anyway because it's his. Look at verse 14. And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? That eventually, dad, your little boy is going to grow up. He's going to be a young man. And he's going to come to you and say, dad, I don't get it. And so just imagine the kid's like 12 or 13 years old. And he comes to his dad. He says, hey, dad, um, I got to ask you a question. So every time one of our sheep gives birth to a lamb, the first one, you always sacrifice. And I understand, like, your granddaddy told you to do that, but, but I've been looking over the books, Dad, and we're ranchers. I mean, this is what we do. These lambs that you are sacrificing, the problem is, is you always sacrifice the first one and the best one. And do you know that this last year you sacrificed 43 lambs? And again, I know your granddaddy told you to do that, but listen, you're killing our bottom line here. I don't get it. And so in this passage, God is telling Moses to tell the people, when the time comes and your son says, hey, Dad, help me understand what's going on, here's how you answer him. You shall say to him, by a strong hand of the Lord, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, that all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. So when you hear that, you just hear Bible verses. Listen. So then the dad would look at the boy and be like, oh, son, there's something that I haven't told you about. We didn't always live in the promised land. That, that there was a day when your great-granddaddy and all of our people, we were slaves and we were in bondage under the evil authority of Pharaoh. And because God loved us so much, he heard the cry of his people. And, and not by anything that we had done to deserve it, but God moved by his mighty hand to free our people from slavery. <clears throat> and he sent this great leader, Moses, he sent him in, and, and then he sent all these plagues, and on the 10th plague, an angel of death passed over Egypt. And every single person gave up the firstborn, except, except the men and women, the families who went, and they got a perfect spotless lamb, and they shed his blood, and they put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their homes, and then the angel of death passed over. And then by God's strong hand, he delivered us out of sin and slavery. And now we get to live in the promised land because, because God's first and God went first. And because of that, son, because of that, then it is my honor and it is my privilege to always bring to God first and best because that's what he did for us. 
Now, let me tell you how this plays out in 2014. So my family, we give first. We bring our first fruits. I had Gretchen calculate it this week, and my, my disciple group told me I had to tell you that last year we brought 22% of what came in back to kingdom building stuff. That includes our church, our, both of our building campaigns, Compassion Kids, a bunch of other stuff, okay? 22%. And so God is not a legalist, okay? God is not a legalist. You figure out how to bring first to God, and he'll be okay with it, whether that's budget first or whatever. In our world, this is what we do. On the first day of the week, which is Sunday, as soon as I get finished with this and praying and hanging out, I go get my wallet, and I go to one of the giving kiosks. And what I'm trying to do is on the first day of the week, the first money we spend is we bring God's first back to him. Make sense? Now, God's not a legalist. If Gretchen stops at Starbucks and gets Starbucks on the way here, now again, I'd be like, why do you do that? It's already paid for here, but that's a different conversation, okay? I don't think God's going to be like, well, you're in trouble now because now your finances all week are not blessed. No, no, no. He's just checking your heart, okay? So the first thing we do is that's what I do. And so over the summer, JP is standing back here with me. And I do, I usually give at the giving kiosk that's by the, um, by the sanctuary because there's nobody there by the time I'm leaving. And usually JP's not paying any attention. He's playing with somebody or whatever. But one day this summer, he's standing right there. And you can see the giving kiosk. It's about eight-year-old height, right? Like you can see it. And so I swipe my card and I, t- I type in my phone number and choose my name. And then I put in the number. And for us, it's three numbers. We do it operating giving and then we do something towards Upon This Rock campaign and then something uh, towards Restore. So we're all in. I, I got to be all in, right? And so, and then it adds it up and there's a little number at the bottom. Now, if you saw the number, some of you, it would be a monster, some, monster number. For some of you, it's chump change, all right? And praise God, you're just rolling. Keep rolling, man. Just give God first, all right? <clears throat> now, to an eight-year-old, it's more money than he's ever seen. And he looks at that number, and he goes, just like this, Dad, why are we giving so much money to the church? And I go, first of all, time out, Hoss, you ain't giving jack. You understand? <laughs> this is me and your mama bringing. You ain't. You got nothing, you're giving nothing. All right, you live free at my house. Let's just be clear about that. So, you're just under the blessing. That's how this goes. But honestly, I began to think about this verse, that there will, a time will come when your son will ask, what does this mean? And so, I'm tell, it wore me out. I took my backpack off, I put all my junk down, I hit sin on the thing, and I sat down, there's a little pew right by the giving kiosk, and I sat down eyeball to eyeball with him because I wanted to get it, and I just said, JP, you don't understand, buddy. Your dad, there's, there's a lot about your dad that you don't know. Your dad was a different man before Jesus. Your dad did a lot of bad stuff to a lot of people for his own good for a long time. Your dad did nothing, nothing to deserve new life. But God, by his strong hand, loved me first because he's first. And he sent his best to come down the cross to free me of all the sin and all the bondage and all the baggage. And in glad submission and response, JP, we will always bring our best and we will always bring our first to God because God loved us so much that he first gave his best for us. And JP, not only that, not only did God just save me, but he, but he called me to be a part of what I think is the best church in America. And what God is doing in this place is for generations, has never even been seen before around here. It's unbelievable. And not only that, but you, you are a product of what God is doing in this place. 
You remember the day you got baptized in this church and you stood before this church family and said Jesus Christ was your Lord and Savior and you got dunked in this church? And therefore, not because I'm trying to get God to do anything for me, but because he already has, because he's first and he went first. This is what we do in my house. This is what we do in our house, bud. And, and it is our pleasure to do so. That's why you tithe. And I'll just tell you, it burns me up when people come to me and they, try to, they want to make this biblical argument about how the tithe is just the Old Testament. I just want to cut through and go, hey, let's just be honest. You're trying to come up with a way to keep more, right? I mean, just tell me. If that's it, just say it. Do you know why we didn't stop at 10%? Because God didn't stop with us. He lavishes his love upon us. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. I would love for there to be a day where I get to live on 10 and just bring back to God 90. I'd love that day. Love that day. So here's what you do. Here's what you do. First and foremost, you just have to decide in your heart. You just got to decide, all right, I'm bringing God first. You make it a priority. Secondly, a bunch of you need to get on a budget. You don't even know what the first 10% is. You just have no idea. And I'm just telling you, If you were my financial planner and I gave you my money and then I came to you and said, so where is it at? You went, I don't know. I'm taking it all back. Some of the reason that God's not blessing you financially, be honest. If you were God, would you give you more money based on what you're doing with his money? No. No, you know you wouldn't. Okay? And then some young guys come to me and say, well, I don't have enough margin to tithe as they're standing there with a Starbucks. I'm like, bro, you love caramel macchiato more than you love Jesus. And first of all, you look like a wuss ordering a caramel macchiato. You understand? Stop. (laughs) Just get black coffee. Period. So you just got to take, you just kind of got, you know, assess where you are. Now, I don't even want to talk too much about percentage. <clears throat> but you, then you just, you and your family, you decide how much. You determine how much. Just, and if, you've, if you're not doing anything, just get in the game. Whatever the percentage is, it's a start. Okay? But it just needs to be first. And then you got to make it a practice. You don't just tip God whenever you got a little extra in your pocket or tip God whenever I make you cry. You don't do that. You make it a practice, a part of your routine, however you do that, online or bring a check or whatever. Part of the reason we decided to give weekly is because we used to be over our head in consumer debt. And so for me, it's an act of worship to type that number in. Every time, every time it's like, oof, okay, send. And then you go progressive. You just try to figure out a way to bring more and more and more back to God for his kingdom expansion. Now, at the end of every single worship service, I've said this, that we respond to God That's what worship is. Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done. You see, he's first and he went first. That's it. He's first and he went first. And so the song that we're going to sing is one of my favorite hymns, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. Okay? Which means everything you've got came from God. Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. That's response. Not, God, you better get in tune with me. I gave you something, now you owe me. That's not what it is. But God, tune my heart to your key that I'm going to respond to who you are. You're first, and you went first. And so you've called me to make you first. And the, and the way I do that is I bring you first and best. That's what I do. Because you first love me by bringing me your best. And then we're going to sing this part, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Those are the most real verses of any song in the world for me. There's so many days I walk up, wake up, and I just wander over here somewhere. It's dumb. And then you say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. So we're going to respond. We're going to respond by singing. Some of you need to respond by coming to repent at the altar. Some of you are in financial distress. Straight up, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You didn't see the economy turning, okay? Or you've got some medical bills. Didn't see it coming. We live in a broken world. You come and you lay that at his feet and trust your dad to be in control of it, okay? So we're going to respond. 
coming to the altar. We're going to respond by singing. We're going to respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the God that gave us his first and his best. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you went first. Thank you so much that you are first. God, I pray that because of the truth of your word and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, that we understand the gospel better today. And that bringing you our tithes and offerings is an expression of our response to the gospel. Lord, I just pray that your word lands on fertile soil. God, I pray against the enemy right now. Because I know this, Lord. Maybe I didn't get all the details right, and that's fine. But I know there's not a person in here that's hearing from you that they should be less generous. I just know that. Because you are, you exhibit the ultimate generosity in your son, Jesus. As the Holy Spirit, we love you. God, we thank you. We praise you. God, we respond to you because you first loved us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond.